I think the game is getting a lot harder. I think the bar has been upped by every organization who's like, we're going to deliver a far better, more consultative, more personalized experience. And as that bar has gone higher and higher and higher, I think more folks are seeing that a career in sales is challenging, but as rewarding as any other career. Hi, I'm Jubin, business development and go-to-market operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm really excited to bring you this episode of Go-to-Market Grit, a show that interviews amazingly successful sales and go-to-market leaders and explores how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build world-class teams. Before we jump in with our amazing guest today, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Loom. If you haven't heard of Loom, you should definitely check them out. They're bringing video messaging to work. Using Loom is like sending a text instead of making a phone call, but you're using video. You don't need to schedule anything or coordinate with anyone. Just record, hit stop, and a link to your video message is instantly ready to share. Turns out, it's really good for sales. Our portfolio companies use Loom when they're doing outreach, and sending a demo video is just so much more engaging than an email. It's super fast, fun, and the best part, it's free. Sign up today at loom.com. And now, on to this episode. Mecca, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate you having me here. So I'm going to start by reading your background to you, as I understand it, and then fill in the blanks, okay? And I am going to spend more time on your background than I typically would other guests, because your background is atypical for sales. And I think it actually lends itself really well to some of the topics that you and I are going to discuss. So I love your positive spin of atypical and not just <laughs> weird or haphazard or makes no sense. <laughs> no, I think it, I think honestly, it informs the way that you probably are as a leader and a go to market thinker. So it's really interesting. Started at Princeton, looked like a double major in economics and finance Cum laude, I think is how you pronounce it. Clearly, I was not one of those guys. <laughs> I assume that just means with distinction. Is that right? It does. It okay. does. Yeah, I certainly didn't have that after my uh, BA. Then you went and spent four years with the Cleveland Indians as the player development and operations person there. Yep. Basically, assistant GM is kind of the way that I understood it. And I want to read the description of this. Managed operations of minor league systems, 40 staff and 150 players, and advised the general manager on major league roster and payroll allocations through advanced statistical analysis. Then you went to Harvard, got your MBA, and then you went to Bain to be a case team leader, which I think just means you kind of run a project, right? Yep. And then it looks like you kind of got your first foray into sales. So you went to Stripe, ultimately becoming the head of sales and customer success for the startup and SMB segment of Stripe. You were there for, I guess, about four years. You did a quick stint at Divi Homes, and now you are the VP of sales at Mixpanel as of, what, a month and a half ago? Yeah, as of 30, 35 days. So uh, definitely a, a new and fresh perspective. Not that anyone's counting. So 356 employees. You guys have raised, I think, a Series A and a B. Andreessen's in it. Sequoia did the seed, I think. Mark Benioff from Salesforce participated, Keith Raboy, Peter Thiel, kind of the who's who of investors. So now you're there. Question number one, are you Jonah Hill from Moneyball? <laughs> are you kidding me? Didn't he work for the Indians? Didn't Brad yeah. Pitt go and get him from the Indians? Yeah. So it's a little bit of a, whenever I would tell people what I do, most folks didn't really understand. Some people thought that I was a mascot. Some people thought I just sold tickets. And I would always just say, hey, have you read Moneyball? The character that's just in a back office running numbers, that's kind of what I did for four years. Honestly, it was one of the best jobs and one of the worst jobs. It was such an amazing way to start a career. My first job out of college, you know, three months in, I'm running around spraying champagne on people as our team won the AL Division Series. And I think you just don't have those types of career opportunities very often. And I learned so much about organization building. I work with such a talented team and you'll hear this a lot, but I think a theme in my career has just been follow really good people because you're going to learn a lot by being surrounded by them. And in those four years, I worked harder than I'll probably ever work, but I learned more 
sort of in those four years that I have in any other four-year stretch of my career. So the Moneyball actual story of the Oakland days preceded you, right? That was early 2000s was when analytics started to get introduced to baseball. And then I think through the 2000s, you see Daryl Morey with the Houston Rockets. Was this when things, when analytics were becoming vogue? Was that kind of when you were there? It definitely was. And it was when you started to seeing a bunch of general managers from Wall Street, finance, MBA backgrounds. The funny thing about what you, you read, advanced statistical analysis, is when I joined the Indian sort of I was on the higher end of a quantitative ability. And by the time I left, our PhDs wouldn't even let me in the room. And there was so much (laughs) growth in those four years of what statistical analysis meant in baseball that my job very fundamentally shifted during my time there. Oh man, with my uh, mental horsepower, they might not even let me into the stadium for a game. (laughs) So the two topics that I want to explore with you are kind of a stigma around sales or specifically intelligence in sales and how to enable a high velocity sales engine. So I think especially on topic one, you're so well suited to, I think, have really cool and unique insights on this. What were you actually doing? Running advanced statistical analysis, what does that mean? Yeah, I mean, I guess basically what I would say is I I would try to boil down a bunch of data points across a bunch of different signals to help us make more informed decisions. So baseball is just infamously this place where a lot of decisions for a long time were made based off of gut. Or if you're scouting a player, you'd actually give them a grade on their makeup, which was just how tough are they? How resilient are they? How much grit do they have? It's just this all-encompassing score of all of the intangibles. And things have gotten even more advanced now, but you just try to grade everything that you can. It's to a point now that you'll have health score grades that are based off of a hundred different data points of the player's physicals. So in that time, we were looking at, you know, how do we even think about a bunch of scouts and say, this kind of scout has this predisposition to overvaluing this statistic and pulling his grade down on that piece. So it was really just looking at every data point that we could get, putting it in and using it to help us figure out, do we extend this person to a you know four-year, $100 million contract? Do we want to draft this high school player versus this college player? And I think in baseball, because of the fact that the surface area of all of the players sort of internationally, in high school, in college, in the major leagues is so big, if you just systematically say, we're going to figure out every data point that we can use to help give us a competitive advantage, that it actually helps. And all of these, I worked at the Cleveland Indians, which is a small market where you're competing with teams with sort of 4X, 5X. Similar to the athletics, right? Exactly. For context, in baseball, there is no cap. And so the way that it works is that if you're the Yankees or the Red Sox, this isn't like basketball or another sport where there's a cap. You can just spend whatever you want. Exactly. So when we were there, there were times where two players on the Yankees would be paid more in a year than our entire payroll. And the reason for that is because the Yankees were bringing in so much more money because they were a large market team through ad revenues, through TV, through ticket, through concessions, whatever it might be, that they could then funnel that money back into the program and pay their players more. Exactly. You nailed it. Part of the knock on baseball has always been competitive balance where the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Dodgers are always good because they have unfair advantage and the Tampa Bay Rays and the Cleveland Indians and the Kansas City Royals and teams where the local economy is just smaller, the media market is smaller, that the deck is sort of tilted against them. So these clubs basically were forced into innovating to figure out where is an advantage that we can actually have that keeps us competitive. So that was my goal, was trying to figure out how to compete with uh, Goliath with just a slingshot. And you're literally calibrating the inherent biases that scouts have as they're scouting players. So you'll have a normal set of scouts. The Indians would have a normal set of scouts that have been there for a long time. And I hope I'm not over Hollywoodizing this story, but you have this normal set of scouts. And then Mecca comes in and says, hey, These are the grades that the scouts gave them. Here is why I think this grade is wrong because of the attributes that this player has. But here's also why I think this grade is wrong because of the biases that the scout has. Totally. And, you know, another concrete example of what we did is we, in our minor league system, we basically gave pitchers an iPad and they would sit behind the stadium and chart every single pitch that a pitcher threw. And rather than just recording the output of, you know, strikeout, we would record where was the catcher set up 
And did the pitcher deliver the ball to where the catcher was set up? And then how hard did the batter hit the ball? So we're starting to get, rather than just seeing a box score and seeing the result, you're starting to see what actually went into that result. And because baseball is such a game where, you know, as a hitter, if you, you know, successful one out of every three times, that's a really positive outcome. And the spread between a good hitter and a great hitter is so tiny that having some of these extra data points really help you strip out some of that luck and that small sample size that will play out over the course of an entire career. And I think in Moneyball, and there's been a lot of studies on this now, kind of through the analytics days, but if their significant other was good looking, that would literally increase their score. Literally the most arbitrary things that really had nothing to do with performance were inherently really deep biases that these scouts had from years of what turns out to be really poor pattern recognition. Totally. I mean, I, I remember reading scouting reports around this player's mom looks like this, so he's going to age in a certain way. Do not draft. And some of that stuff, you really depend on your scouts to go and dig in and understand the player, understand sort of how they became who they became. It's no different than us interviewing for jobs and them asking us behavioral questions or sort of the number of CEOs who are firstborn children. So there's obviously things that you wouldn't necessarily think have a relation to how you perform that do. And you just have to make sure that you're counting the ones that actually make sense and that you're discounting the ones that don't make a ton of sense and haven't proven themselves out with data. Then bringing this back full circle, the idea was to find undervalued players. And so essentially you needed to find, and we talk a lot about it on this show, undiscovered talent, right? You're competing with, as you and I think about it, if you're a startup or you're a small market team, you're competing for talent with the largest companies or the largest teams, the Yankees, right? Were there any things that you saw, consistent traits that were undervalued in the folks that you would look for, you would actively try and mine for? Yeah. I mean, it's honestly no different than career. And I think so much of this is on, you know, we talk about growth mindset now. If I had to boil it down, like that's what it was 10 years ago. It was growth mindset. It was when a player has a setback, are they like, oh man, that was out of my control? Or are they thinking about, all right, what are the things that I can do differently to make sure I don't make that mistake ever again? And watching how people deal with success and failure, to me, are so important. You want the person who sees a success, you know, is happy about it for a second and then goes back out and starts grinding again. On the failure side, you want somebody who takes it to heart and really understands what's in their ability to control and how can they fix it and really working towards that. And I just always wanted somebody in sales, in baseball, in friends in life who are just very much self-aware of their strengths and their weaknesses and the things that they can control and the things that they can't control. And I think of this as, you know, there's a bunch of words to describe this now, resilience. I like to think of it as grit. That's what that is. How did you find that resilience? Can you see that in numbers? Can you see that in analytics? I mean, at times you can see it in terms of how long do guys' streaks last. So for somebody who's, you always hear lots of hitters or lots of pitchers go through really cold months or cold stretches. And it's like, what ability does that person have to get out of that stretch quicker than somebody else does? When someone has a injury, we're starting to collect all this data on this is what happens when you tear your rotator cuff, or this is how long you should be out with Tommy John surgery. You know, does this person come back faster or slower than somebody else. So much of this is all comparisons against the baseline. There's 160 players in each minor league system, and you've got years and years of data against people. So you start to have a baseline of what is normal and what is exceptional. I always think about watching a completely different sport, but Adrian Peterson tours ACL and he was back sort of operating at Hall of Fame level performance faster than folks were just like returning back to their mediocre careers. Similar to VC, similar to, to baseball, it's all about the outliers. You're solving for the one guy who gets through the system, becomes a Hall of Fame player, and you lock in early on a contract to give yourself an unfair advantage. VC, you're looking for the, you know, the 100x return. For me, it was thinking about of these 160 guys, which one, two or three players have the chance to be what we call the championship cornerstone player, somebody who we could build our entire organization around. And I think you hear that in the 10X engineer and the 10X salesperson, but it's all about, you get just so much more leverage from that one person who is just so, you know, they bend the curves of the things that you are measuring. I think that's another thing that I've just taken across my entire career is how to be data-driven, how to be metrics-oriented, and 
as I think about coaching sales managers, it's how do you coach the numbers? How do you coach to pipe creation, win rate, cycle time, and basically show a great salesperson does this. This is where you are on that. Help me understand why. And is it excuses or is it, oh, okay, wow, I really see what you're saying here. I need to work on X, Y, and Z going forward. Will you give me feedback on this? Can you shadow my calls and tell me if I'm doing this thing better? Do they continue to check in with you you know, in your weekly one-on-ones or your bi-weekly skip levels? You told me to work on this thing, and these are the four things that I'm doing to work on that. When I see somebody, you give them a problem, and they lay out, here's my seven-step plan to absolutely crush this thing that you said as a limitation. Those are the types of people I want in my organization who are going to be game changers for the future. So unbeknownst to you, I talked to a few folks on your team. And one of the quotes is, you're the first sales leader they've ever had who truly values data. And I thought, of course, you know, given your background. So question for you, the knock against analytics, and I'm sure you know it well, is you lose your feel. And so- But a lot of people say, I'll use the Houston Rockets as an example. And Daryl Morey is, I think, known as one of the greatest GMs in basketball because he's built a great roster and all these things. But they don't shoot anything that's not a layup or a three-pointer. Yeah, I've been watching the Michael Jordan documentary. I talked to uh, Bob Fratty, the CRO of Slack. And you know what MJ shot? The jump shot, like in the paint, all the time, right? And he used to tell people, this is the deadliest, hardest shot to stop in the game. And so do you lose your feel? And specifically, when I think about sales, if it's so data-driven, do you lose the human element? And do you miss some of the tells of the right people, when to push, when to not? Yeah. No, I mean, I think just because you're data-driven doesn't mean that you're not gut-driven. In my personal life, I'm probably the opposite of who I am in my professional life. I make a ton of gut decisions. You know, my fiance and I got engaged a year after we met and we moved in together three months after we met. And it was one of those things where you just know. Mm -hmm. As I think about professionally, you can't solely base things on the numbers, especially if you're doing something for the first time and there's no baseline. And other people, I think, I still remember one of the most talented people I ever worked with the numbers that she produced in the early days were not great. And I wasn't sure if this person was even going to survive. And they ended up being sort of one of the best people that I've ever worked with from a qualitative and quantitative standpoint in, in what they delivered. So to me, it's just thinking about data as another one of the tools in your toolbox. The data will never tell you whether or not someone handles a disco call the right way. I think if they're absolutely crushing it, maybe you don't need to say, hey, you know, whatever you're doing is wrong. Let's figure out what's broken. But you do still need to shadow reps and understand, like, are they taking the right approach? Are they treating customers like they're first class citizens and doing everything to optimize for a great experience? It's just one piece of the puzzle. But I think it's a piece of the puzzle that is most often overlooked. And in building a high velocity sales engine, I think it's a piece of the puzzle that if you overlook, you're never gonna do it right unless you just happen to be selling Zoom or Slack right now. And I think Mixpanel is a Zoom Slack type product for digitally native, highly innovative businesses. But I also think that if you build the system like you are a small market club and you happen to be having that system, but in a big market club payroll, all of a sudden you've got this like unfair competitive advantage where you're just going to sweep up the competition. Quick story. So when I started my career as a BDR, cold, hard emails and hundreds of phone calls every day. And in order to get my first BDR job, I fell in love with this company and really a boss. And he didn't give me the job. So I tried to get the office manager position. I couldn't sell myself into getting the office manager position. So I went out and got I probably did 30 different interviews for 30 different companies for BDRs, probably didn't get, you know, 26 of them, got four of them. Every single one that I would get, I would send him the offer letter and I'd say, hey, you ready? And he kept telling me like, your risk profile is too high. What he meant by that is you're too raw. And for those listening, like I wouldn't advise doing this, but I was desperate. And I accepted an offer and I sent it to him. I said, I accepted this offer and I'm going to start on Monday. Are you ready? And the next day he brought me on board. So I feel on top of the world. For two and a half months, I did not set a single meeting, not one meeting. And 
you know, I think kind of relating it back to your story. And then the first meeting I got, it was a CIO of Disney. He called my cell phone. He's like, Shubin, thanks for reaching out. Like, I'd love to chat. Thankfully, if he was just looking at the data, right, I wasn't producing. Like, if it was just an output thing, I wasn't producing, but my input was pretty good. And I think there's a gut instinct there where he would even ask me, like, dude, did we do the right thing here? There is a feel that if you lose that, I think you might give up on people too soon. I think it could be over-emotional and you might not let go of someone in time, right? They've been around for too long and you've gotten too close or you can't kind of see the forest through the trees. And so I do think that that feel is really important. And I think that's the, the main knock against kind of analytics. Yeah, no, I love that story. The other question for you is competitive balance. So you mentioned competitive balance. Clearly the Indians were at an imbalance, right? It was an imperfect system. Turns out everything's an imperfect system. In a startup, you are operating within an imperfect, imbalanced, unfair system. What is the professional attitude from the Cleveland Indians in the Oakland days? Do they think it's unfair? Do they get down on it? What's the mindset that you have being that underdog? Yeah, I mean, I think that the mindset was control the controllables and forget about the rest. And there's a bunch of things. And I've, I've always said this to folks on my team, to friends in my life is, there's no use in losing sleep about something if there's no way to change it. If there's a way to change it, then get up tomorrow morning and figure out how to change it. But if you're operating in a system that is just unfair, you've got to accept the world for the way it is. And you've got to go play with a chip on your shoulder and be better. So I think that we were very much aware of the way the system worked. And in that system, the only way for us to succeed was to say, we're going to compete in these windows where we're going to get a bunch of young talent. We're going to lock them up. They're all going to be locked up over an overlapping period. And that's going to be our championship window. And then if we don't win in that championship window, right before the end of it, we're going to trade off or sell off all of our valuable pieces, invest in young talent that's in the minor leagues and try to build another overlapping championship window. Similar to the Warriors where they had Steph, they locked him up early to a favorable team deal, 13, 14 million a year, which for Steph Curry was unbelievably good. And they weren't paying the luxury tax that they would otherwise have to be paying. And so then they could surround him with Draymond Glean, you know, Clay Thompson. They could put Sean Livingston, Andre Iguodala, all of these guys, obviously Kevin Durant eventually. Exactly. And, you know, the Warriors are interesting because they moved from a small market club to a big market club who now has all the advantages of a shiny new stadium, a city, San Francisco, or the Bay Area that's gone through all kinds of crazy wealth creation. But I think for us in Cleveland, Ohio, we knew, you know, we're a Rust Belt town. There's not enough disposable income in our MSA to sell out. Even when we had really good teams, it's also cold. It snows on (laughs) opening day. So we'll have our great opening day. And then for a month in April, when it's teetering between you know, zero degrees and 45 degrees, we know the stadium is going to be empty. And no matter how good you are, that limits where we were ever able to get on a payroll standpoint. So I keep talking about this ability to have good EQ and self-reflection. And for us as an organization at Cleveland, understanding what cards we were dealt and how do we make the most of the cards we were dealt. And I think as a startup, you need to think about that too, in terms of sort of, all right, I'm the little guy. No one's ever heard of me. How do I play in this market where everyone has heard of these giant incumbents? Or, you know, if I'm in an area where I'm creating a new category, my approach has to be entirely different because I have to explain to people why I need to exist. My time at Stripe was interesting because you never really have to explain to someone that they need to collect revenue. You know, our job was to explain why we were the best platform for that. But you have to understand sort of what are the characteristics of the battle you're fighting And because of that, what are the things that I have to nail in order to win that battle? So kind of going into more of the sales world, dovetailing into your thought on Stripe. One of the things that struck me was someone tweeted, I think, I can't remember who it was, but basically we need a last dance for the PayPal mafia. And the PayPal mafia, for those listening, is like this legendary consortium of Peter Thiel, Keith Raboy, Reed Hoffman, Max Levchin, like Elon Musk, amazing, amazing entrepreneurs that all came into PayPal and then did, you know, LinkedIn, Tesla, SpaceX, you name it, right? I think the reason I'm bringing this up is because what they talk about a lot, what Keith Raboy talks about a lot, is this notion that none of them had any experience in the payment space, mm-hmm. maybe two of them, really very little. And it worked out pretty well. They got sold to eBay. They're all doing their own thing now. 
And I think, you know, it comes from this notion of, look, it doesn't have to be domain expertise, but just coming from a first principles growth mindset perspective. That's why I love your background so much. How did you end up in sales? What was the first thing where you're like, all right, it's time to go to Stripe and be a sales rep? What was that transition like? Yeah. I mean, I think the transition for me, it didn't happen overnight. After business school, I moved to San Francisco and at Bain, I was working for what I call large dinosaur tech. So think about the Cisco's, the HP's, the Symantec's corporations that they're technology companies. But if you say you work in tech and then you tell someone that you're you know, working down the peninsula at Cisco on routers, they might look at you a little funny. <laughs> but I think what it was is I was so close to the energy that everyone was talking about, but I wasn't a part of it. And all of the important people in my life were working for tech companies. And, you know, for me, it came down to seeing how quickly you could impact real change in an organization. And as a consultant, man, you're lucky if you have a six month case and you deliver some recommendations and two years later, something is different. Whereas in tech, you know how it is. Some CEO asks you a question and you like have an answer for them the next day and you you get it out to the customer two days later and you measure the impact. And I knew that I wanted to be a part of something where you could see the results of your impact immediately. And the other thing is when you join a large organization, it's just really tough to land in a spot where the work you're doing is meaningful enough to land on the CEO's plate. And I think when you're at a small corporation or a small startup, Everything that you do is meaningful enough to land on the CEO's plate. So I knew I wanted to be in an early stage company. And again, I go back to following talented people. I, I looked at all the people in my section at business school, asked them sort of what companies that they had heard of that were doing cool things, where people were working. And multiple people were like, oh, you should check out this payment company, Stripe. At that time, I still wasn't sure exactly what I was going to do. And I remember talking with the recruiter and they're like, we think you're talented. We're not exactly sure what to do with you. Yeah. You know, you can come be in BizOps, which is our like internal consulting organization. You can help build out our customer support organization or you can sell. And I was kind of like, oh, well, you know, selling sounds interesting. Like I've always liked being in front of people. And I think in tech, for the most part, you make a product or you sell a product. So for me, it was a great place to be close to the customer and really learn the product. And I think in all the organizations where I respect product focus and customer centricity are like very important values. So to me, it felt like an area where you would be. And I think the other thing is like, I have aspirations at one day to be a CEO. And I think that when you think about the backgrounds of where people come from, a lot of them come from a revenue standpoint and it's places where you can lead and manage large teams who are responsible for, for revenue, which ultimately is the goal of most companies out there. So it just felt like a really natural fit. My year on the front line selling at Stripe was, again, one of those like really steep learning curves where you just get beat down with a bunch of no's, even though I was selling a product that was like best class. But we were trying to go up market, trying to sell an enterprise. And some of these businesses were like, we've never heard of you. Are you going to go out of business soon? Why should we trust you with something yeah. so mission critical? But I fell in love with tech. I fell in love with payments. I fell in love with my coworkers. I fell in love with the high of closing deals. Just that feeling that you get of getting revenue across the finish line. I loved solving problems for our customers. You're also interfacing with really important people at cool businesses. So it was just... Yeah, everything about that year was magical. And why would anyone not want to be in sales? And I think at the time, I was probably one of the only people in my business school class who was doing sales. And I think people from college, people from business school are asking, why are you doing a sales gig? And to me, it was like, dude, why are you not doing a sales gig? This is the most energized I've been in, in a really long time. I freaking love this stuff. I love that. So that question of why are you in a sales gig? So in tech, you're either making or selling a product. Everyone is in sales in some way, shape, or form. You're selling your engineering manager on doing a project, whatever it is. Elon Musk talks about how too many smart people go into law and finance and not into building things. I lump selling into building things because you got to build it and then you got to sell it. Like I think they're very complementary. So I think there's a stigma around sales. I'm curious to hear your thoughts. You know, you think of all the kind of negative tells of a salesperson, right? You think of the sleazy car salesperson, and I don't understand why. Is there a stigma in your mind around sales in general? And then a follow-up question to that, if maybe you could opine, is a stigma around intelligence, someone with a Harvard MBA going into sales, to the question that your friend, like, dude, what are you doing in sales? Yeah. I mean, I think there definitely is a stigma. I think, number one, HBS has all kinds of curriculum out there, but there's not one class that teaches sales. 
nowhere. Like not just HBS, <laughs> like there's no like sales degree. That doesn't really yeah. exist. Yeah. And you would think the West Point of capitalism would have something that is so inherent to capitalism. So it just feels like a very missing piece. And I hope that's changed since I've left. But it, it really is interesting. And I think my guess is the reason people feel this way is that I think people think of sales as a blue collar job. If I told you that I went into BD, people are like, oh, yeah, BD. But like BD is also just sales, but it's just yeah. at a very different level or partnerships. People are like, oh, yeah, cool partnerships. But it's when you say sales, they're like, what? So I think the stigma is starting to go away. And I think another piece that's probably led into that stigma is I don't know how much time you spent in engineering led organizations, but in certain ones, it's like, oh, the salespeople are over there in the corner and they just they have this easy job. We built this amazing product with zero flaws that everyone is just knocking on the door of. And the salespeople just, you know, have to just get them to sign a contract. That job is easy. And obviously that's so far from the truth of what selling actually is like, even in the best case scenario of insane product market fit, the number of objections you have to deal with is crazy. But I think that sales in general has become, I think the IQ and EQ that you need to be a successful sales rep. I think the game is getting a lot harder. I think the bar has been upped by every organization who's like, we're gonna deliver a far better, more consultative, more personalized experience. And as that bar has gone higher and higher and higher, I think more folks are seeing that a career in sales is challenging, is just like as rewarding as any other career. I think the technical bar has also gone up, right? Definitely, and I think that's the same with Stripe and Mixpanel. You can't be a salesperson without intimately understanding the problems of your core constituents, whether it's a head of product or a CFO or a you know head of data science. Like I need to inherently understand how a Stripe or a mix panel solves problems for PMs, engineers, data infrastructure organizations. And if I don't have the ability to articulate why this is better than their current state, I have no business being in the room. And I think for me, that's why I loved sales. It was like, I got to geek out on payments infrastructure. I got to geek out on the different problems that folks had with monetization. Now at Mixpanel, I get to geek out about how are the best organizations rapidly iterating on their product experiences. So getting to work with Uber to say, you want to increase the percentage of people who sign up to be drivers, helping arm product managers to have that process improve is a really exciting thing to be a part of. And then just fast forward and do that a hundred times with a hundred of the most innovating businesses. And now you see why sales is such a cool job because you're fundamentally helping the smartest people solve the hardest problems. And when your product can be a part of that, it's really something special to watch. I couldn't agree more. And I'm doing more and more of these kind of episodes profiling some of the most thoughtful sales leaders in the Valley. and. I asked the question, how'd you get there? It's very, very, very rare that it's by design. Even your story, yeah, you want to do, you know, success. You're smart, but we don't know. And it's never years in the making like an engineer is, right? There's never this notion of, you know, I'm building myself up to be a salesperson. And these are the things that I'm doing, the resilience that I'm building in order to do this thing really well. It's like a hidden secret. It's like one of the best jobs, I think, in the world. Going back to my original point, everyone is selling. At some point, you are selling. And so why don't you think there's more Ivy League degrees in sales? I think because it's tough to skip steps. So to me, if you look at a lot of revenue leaders, they all spent some time carrying a quota. And if you didn't, I think it's really hard to understand what it's like to be in that seat. I think it's hard to coach sales manager. I think it's just, there's a path for a lot of CROs or VP of sales. And I think a lot of people who go to Ivy League schools, they wanna skip a step. They wanna go be a consultant and they wanna be in the boardroom with the CEO when they're two years out of college. Or if you're in finance, again, you're seeing a business at a level that if you go into that business directly, you're seven layers below. And when you're thinking about a sales career, I think, Lots of sales leaders did start out as a, you know, outbound DR, inbound DR, SNBAE, mid-market AE, enterprise AE, sales manager, sort of sales director, VP of sales. And unless you end up stumbling into the right organization at the right time, which I sort of feel lucky to have done, you don't get to skip steps. And I think the other thing, too, that's happening in sales is the profile of sort of what you saw in baseball of GMs. 
the profile of the sales leader is changing. And, you know, Amir, my CEO at Mixpanel is always like, you're the one executive thinking about monetization. But monetization means working very closely with product to make sure that they're building the things that the customer wants. It's working very closely with marketing to make sure that the messaging is landing in the right way. It's working very closely with our customer support org, again, because they are impacting sort of the experience our customers are having. So I think the modern sales leader wears, it's working very closely with finance in, okay, how do we think about the optimal sales plan that does the right thing for the business, but also does the right thing for the rest? So the modern sales leader wears, I think, a different hat than they wore 10 or 15 years ago. And I think you're going to start seeing more people with very diverse backgrounds because each one of those steps where you spent somewhere else in your career thinking about a different problem, I think help you when you land in this seat. From the Cleveland Indians, I take a bit of a data-driven approach. I also take a, hey, you managed a minor league organization with a ton of people in it and you're trying to invest in the right people. That's no different than running a very large sales organization. I got to figure out which of my, you know, the 150 people, 100 people in my organization who we need a very clear career development plan because they've got tons of upside. Mm -hmm. From my time at Bain, I think I took a lot of you get thrown in a situation with no answer, but you can sort of start to dissect the problem into sort of like edible chunks. And despite never seeing the problem before, you're comfortable in any way, shape and form. I also think I spent a bunch of time thinking about sort of like recruiting and again, career development, things that are very important from a sales leader's point of view. So I think all of the steps in your career have helped me in the early days of, of this job of leading a you know a global large sales team. And I think you'll continue to see people who worked across strange backgrounds before landing in the seat that they're in. No doubt. Do you think about it ever in opportunity cost? So for example, not to make this about me or my family, but my parents really value education. They're first generation immigrants from Iran. And they went and got their PhDs because that's what they needed to do in order to make a life in America. And so education was of the utmost importance. And it was a badge that gave you the permission to go forward in your career. And so I was always pushed to go get my MBA. And at the time, I was a couple years into my career. I was a sales rep. I was going into the enterprise role. And I was making great money at a young age. And I asked my mom, I'm like, mom, I feel like I'm getting a real life MBA. I'm learning really good skills. I'm making a lot of money and I'm moving up my career ladder. And I feel I have self-confidence and self-esteem. The opportunity cost for me to go spend however much it was for an MBA, it just never made sense. And so I thought at the time, well, maybe that's why a lot of people in sales that grew up in sales, there is a pretty high opportunity cost to then go get an MBA. Yeah, I mean, I can totally see that. I'm, I also, it's funny hearing your first generation Iranian immigrant story. We're the same. I'm a first generation Nigerian immigrant. I'm the third of three kids and all three of us have professional school degrees. And it was just built the second we had graduation, our parents were like, okay, when are you going back to school to get the next thing? You need a professional school degree. And I think a little bit of that is, you know, what you talked about before of imbalance. And for me or for our family, I think it was one of those things where no matter what you do, people can't take your education away from you. So do the thing, get really good grades, go to a good school. That is one thing that you can control and can never be taken away. But there definitely is a huge opportunity cost and business school is not the right play for a lot of people. And I think the other thing is when you look at sales leaders, most sales leaders don't have professional school degrees. So if you're on that path, and you're making a ton of money and you're getting promoted fast to take a two year break to go do this thing that's really expensive and to hope to be able to come back. Like, I don't see a reason why a lot of sales leaders would say, yes, get off this curve where you're making a lot of money, go spend money and then come back to do the same job you were doing before. I get why lots of people aren't, you know, making that jump to go do that. Yeah. Okay. How to enable a high velocity sales engine. I think, again, like you have a lot of experience doing this. You did this at Stripe. You did the six mix panel. This business model has actually proven to work pretty well recently. And I say recently, like within the last decade or so, you see companies across all industries, Freshworks, Samsara, MailChimp, Brex, Zenefits, even Slack to some degree that are really capitalizing on the long tail of the market that the big players, the big market teams aren't looking at necessarily. And then you can always use that wedge to go up market. So I think I'm really curious, 
What did you do at Stripe? How did it work? How do you think about this at Mixpanel? I mean, I think I would start with number one, which is join the company that has a killer product. If the company doesn't have a killer product, it's really hard to do this. And I think the companies that you sort of rattled off, a lot of what enables a high-velocity sales engine is product-led growth. A company that says, we're going to build an amazing product, we're going to get lots of folks in that product, we're going to prime them to be monetized by the go-to-market team or by the sales team, and we're going to build this feedback loop where you make one customer happy, they tell somebody else about it, or they leave that company, go somewhere else, and buy the product again. So I, I think I would say first, buy the right product. And then I think there's a bunch of sort of like operational things, and I put them into three buckets, which is people, tools, and processes. You've got to get amazing people, and you need to understand what you're hiring for and solve backwards. This has got to be customer-centric and figure out what are the jobs that need to be done to get a prospect to happy paying customer and create a recruiting process that just optimizes for that. The second thing I would say is process is over time, what you want to be able to do is say, okay, I hired a really smart person. They're here. They have a good, they have a phenomenal product in their back pocket. Now I need to tell them what they need to do in order to be successful. And it's just over time, iterating that playbook for the personas and the company and the problems and taking the feedback from every loss and every win and funneling it back into the playbook. So you can tell someone you're great. If you do these things, you will be successful. And then I think the last thing is, is on the tool side is you should feel like you have your cockpit and you know, what are the six dials that you're looking at every day or every Monday and slowly just continuing to turn every one of those dials. So, you know, if you take the sales velocity equation and you think about number of opportunities, average deal size, win rate, and cycle time, your sales cockpit might be measuring those four things and looking at how those things are trending. And the second you see a tick, you're like, what happened? How do I fix it? And how do I get things back on the right track? So to me, it's just being very data-driven. I still remember the daily and the Sunday night dashboard that Looker would send me that had basically how everything was performing. And that was my back of the Uber pool reading, which is going through this and picking out, okay, this is off, this is trending well, and figuring out now that I know sort of what happened over the last week or the last day or the last month, these are the resulting actions that I need to press on. And just cascading that down to sales managers and reps to make sure that you're moving in the right direction. It takes time to build up this cadence. And I got lucky to be at a place for four years where it was just inherent in me and I knew what to expect. And the second something was off, I knew something was off. But it takes time to build, I think, that awareness and that dashboard that you have inherent in yourself that sort of dictates how you operate. That's how I ran my business, looking at these dashboards, figuring out what was wrong, and then going and addressing the problems. And then for those listening, quantifying high velocity, give us a sense of to whatever extent you can, how many deals are given reps on your team doing? How large are those deals on average? And maybe this is less about mixed panel and more stripe or whatever you can kind of share, just ballpark figures of like, what does high velocity really mean? Yeah. So High velocity for me was you could close a significant number of deals in less than 30 days. And the number of deals a rep could close, you're talking about the tens and hundreds in a quarter, not like a few. And that to me is high velocity sales. It's having a playbook. At Stripe, we had one call closes, three call closes, and things that took a lot longer. And even on the high velocity sales team, we still had opportunities that took six months, nine months to gestate. But that rep who may have you know, a couple of strategic deals that took nine months could also, while they were working those, just churn out you know, a deal a day or you know, a deal every couple of days. So to me, that's what high velocity is. It's thinking, some people call it transactional sales. I don't think it's transactional because I think we still built strong relationships with customers. But when you're looking at SMB, I think in general for startup or SMB sales to make sense, you need to make it very velocity driven. Otherwise, it's just hard to make the LTV to CAC make sense. And going back to your original point of one of the foundational pillars of high velocity is product-led growth. You don't have time to go prospect for thousands of opportunities to then have a trickle-down effect of hundreds of deals. It has to be you come in and you have a prioritized rank of MQLs, SQLs, and opportunities that are fed through a marketing engine. That marketing engine is typically product-led, 
qualified by marketing through a system of scores, then I assume it's tiered where you have a self-service where someone goes to Stripe and just swipes their credit card and maybe it's a you know zero meeting close, right? And then there's another subset of tiers that are associated with dollar amount and then how many meetings it's expected to close, like some system like that. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you want my job, but yeah, <laughs> you, you hit it. I think you hit it right on the head, which is you have a limited set of resources and you need to figure out sort of what, you know, what engagement you want for different people who fall in different buckets. I think the other thing that you have to solve for is you always want customers to be able to buy or use the way they want to. Um, so to never force a customer to self-serve because they're too small or never force a customer to talk to a sales rep. I think it's important to always remember what it's like to be a customer. And I just went through this when I was evaluating some telephony platforms and I got SDR'd. I think I had three calls with the company and I hadn't seen the product and I just gave up and I said, I'm out. The fact that they were still selling in this antiquated mode of like, I'm going to ask you all your questions. I'm going to try to champ you, but I'm going to give you no value back. Just goes to what's wrong with sales. And back to your other question of why people aren't in sales, it's probably that process of, it feels like a transaction. They want to get these things out of you before you get any value back. So thinking about this high velocity sales engine, it is whatever you design, you have to put yourself in the customer's shoes and make sure that it feels natural and right and their needs are getting net before you think about the company needs. So one of the questions that I had as I was thinking about it, and I am definitely not the aficionado on high velocity. I'm barely the aficionado on anything. That's why I have folks like you on the line. But one of the things that came to my mind is prioritization. When every company looks the same. And what I mean by that is I probably wouldn't recognize a majority of the companies that are under 100 people, as an example. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're an enterprise rep, you see Home Depot or Coca-Cola, that might be fool's gold. But in general, you just have this intuition of that's a whale for me. Can you use data in order to prioritize or how do you do it? So, I mean, I think, again, you prioritize for what's important for the business. So you can take a bunch of publicly available data or persona data and say, these people are more important. So if you think about a mixed panel, we are aiming to serve engineering, product, and design. So if we're looking at too many leads, obviously the first set of leads that we're gonna prioritize are people who fit the persona profile of working in engineering, product, or design. And someone who works in you know, maybe finance or marketing, you know, not our core persona. At Stripe, for instance, it is a pay-as-you-go model where Stripe you know, monetizes off of every transaction. So you can imagine company revenue is really important. And obviously, you may not know, you know for a 50-person company how much revenue they're doing. But if you're smart enough or you've got a data science team who can do it, you can start to figure out signals like, hey, I'm going to scrape a website and I'm going to start to figure out which websites have high ticket size items and which don't or which ones I'm going to look at the traffic that goes to this page versus another. So for every business, I think it's just solving backwards of what does an ideal business look like? What are those characteristics? And then are there ways that I can start to find proxies that would measure that and build that into my lead scoring system or my prioritization system, or just tell individual reps, this is what you're looking for. And they go do the work manually until you can develop an automated process that helps you sort through all of the stuff that's coming through. And again, these are all first world problems where you have too many leads and you have to figure out which ones to interact with. But it's a problem that we have at Mixpanel right now. We had at Stripe and Spades and it was all about making sure that you're really prioritizing the right one. Yeah, it makes sense. And the conversation with Bob Friday, the CRO of Slack is fresh in my mind, but it reminds me a lot of this product oriented sale where they have a ton of top of funnel. They have way more unpaid customers than they do paid customers. And that's the business model. Yep. The thing about that is you should have signals. So with Slack, with Mixpanel, with Stripe, folks are able to sign up for account and start messing around. So you should take these in-app, in-product signals that say, hey, this person just crossed this magical threshold, which means they are on the verge of being a lifetime customer. Go make sure they have everything that they need. And if you start to map out, and this is what Mixpanel actually helps businesses do, is map out these customer journeys from prospect to happy customer and what do the steps look like? And as a sales organization, my job is to say, we are going to intervene at step two to make them get to step three. Because once they get here, we know that they're on this path to success with us as a business. That makes sense. And one of the things that Bob talked about was getting someone on 
the platform is no big deal. Like you're on, you're using it, you're becoming successful. Kind of the transformation, the digital transformation and taking them from old ways to new ways and leveraging the tool as something kind of an underpinning of success for them into kind of their ultimate business outcome. That's really where the rub is. And so customer success is a big investment in that model. In a light touch sales, pre-sales model, is customer success important for you there? Does that roll up to you? How do you think about it? Yeah, it does. It's, it's in my purview. And I actually think it's the most important part of uh, my job is making sure that once customers are onboarded to the platform, that they're getting as much value as possible from it. I mean, when you start to think about a SaaS business and you've got, call it a billion dollars of ARR or a hundred million dollars of ARR, in most years, companies' aspirations are to grow by, call it 20, 30% or something like that. So the new business aspect is 20 million in ARR and the existing business aspect is a hundred million in ARR. And it's a hundred million in ARR that you spent a bunch of resources acquiring. So I fundamentally think a lot of people in a CRO seat or VP of sales seats will just look at new business in AEs because it's easy to measure the incrementality of what they bring in. It's like, they cost me a hundred thousand and I want them to give me a million dollar quota. Whereas what you're doing on the account management, customer success, renewal side is a little bit harder to measure that incrementality, but I think it is far more important. And when you think about being in this product-led growth mindset, your existing customers are what predicate new customers. You make those existing customers happy with the value that they're delivering. You make it so they can't imagine their life without Mixpanel. And then they tell all of their friends about it. And it's just, it's a, a cycle that just continues to build on itself. I love it, man. Well, I'll tell you two months in, I think Mixpanel is, is lucky to have you. It's, it's, it's awesome. It's a great talking. So on that, I think we can wrap it up. Questions that I always ask, what does the word grit mean to you and how have you or your teams applied it? Yeah. I mean, to me, grit is you just got to be a hustler. No task can be below you. You want the person who's really willing to do anything and everything to deliver an amazing experience to customers. And I think when I think about how my teams apply it, it's, it's always thinking about the customer-centric test. Today, when we went to work, did we do things that made our customers happy? Did we take any shortcuts? And I think folks with grit, like you just don't take shortcuts. You always deliver at 120%. One of the models I always live by is, under promise and over deliver. And I just want to make sure that everyone on my team is always over delivering for our customers. Your CEO is listening to that as you're sandbagging your number for the quarter. <laughs> if someone wants to get a hold of you, how do they? What I would tell folks on my team, which is teach with every touch. If you want to talk to somebody who you don't know, make sure you're providing value out of the gate or making it very clear why they should be take part in this conversation. I mean, I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. LinkedIn or Mecca at Mixpanel. I'm like pretty open and always happy to talk to somebody who has a few questions. So many people in my life have paid it forward and hopped on the phone with me and allowed me to, to bounce some ideas off of them. So I'm always happy to do the same. Mecca, thanks so much for your time, man. Of course, it was a pleasure talking with you and glad we made this happen. Thank you folks for tuning in to learn from our amazing guest and for indulging me as the rambling host. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to get in touch or keep up with the pod, please follow me on Twitter at Jubinmir or shoot us an email, gtmg at kleinerperkins.com. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, please support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. Thank you, and I will see you next time.